Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. We, I've neglected to say thank you in the first service, but we just thank you so much for your support, your prayers, and being behind us and making it possible to do what we're doing. Um, we, you know, in the body of Christ, there's many parts working together, and we're trying to do ours, and we thank you for doing yours. Now, about uh, a year ago, when uh, Mark asked me about uh, any, if I had any ideas for a theme for this conference, it just so happened at about the same time I was going to my son's graduation from high school. And um, I'm happy to say my son is actually visiting here. He's going to the Master's College now. But uh, as we're at the graduation, there were many speakers. Uh, there was a the chaplain from the school or campus pastor, uh, the principal of the school, who uh, was not, um, not just the principal, but he even planted a church in his spare time. Uh, you know, he's doing ministry above and beyond, and uh, you had many Christian educators and, and parents that were sharing at the graduation. But I, I couldn't help but feeling agitated in my spirit after that graduation. And so as I was checking myself, I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm just being too critical. You know, I don't want to be God's cop and go after everybody for every little thing. But I started examining, and I was asking myself a few questions that kept nagging at me. And one was, shouldn't being a follower of Jesus Christ affect the way we think, the way we view, and the way we live in the world? Shouldn't that effect be so transforming and consuming that it doesn't simply describe what we do, but it should describe who we are? That's, that's what I believe. That's, and if that is true, then even something as simple as giving a short speech at a graduation should be a time to glorify God by acknowledging and honoring Him. And I believe that's why the Lord put this verse uh, Philippians 1.21 on my heart, I think for a few reasons. One, because I was failing in that area or have some weaknesses that he wanted to get my attention and straighten me out. And plus, he just reminded me through that graduation. And so this, this text here says, for me to live is Christ. Um, I found the New Living Translation helpful in understanding the author's intention there. For to me, living means living for Christ. And that's why I was reflecting this graduation. I was thinking, gosh, we've got all these Christian people here. But what's the difference between this graduation and a secular one? Shouldn't they be living for Christ now, even in this graduation? So living for Christ, it doesn't simply mean that uh, I go to church on Sunday, so I live for Christ. Uh, I've got a Christian fish in my car, so I'm living for Christ. When I go to commute to work, I always put it on. I think it's KKLA out here. I listen to Christian radio. I'm living for Christ. I, I move my bookmarker a few pages every morning. I have my quiet time. I live for Christ. But it's more than that. It's not these little segments on Sunday or little compartments in the morning or before we eat breakfast or in the break time at work or wherever it might be. It's all the time. Every moment should be lived for Christ, knowing Him making him known and all the opportunities he gives us in our, our everyday conversations, our attitudes, our habits, our thoughts. And it seems to me that all too often the way of life of those who claim to follow Jesus doesn't look much different than the world's, except for maybe Sunday or Christian holiday or you're on a plane and you hit turbulence all of a sudden you're 
talking to Jesus again. But outside of that, I'm not, for, for many Christians, I don't see it. I know I fail in this area. I'm sure this has got to speak to all of our hearts because we're human. And be, to live for Christ all the time is something we can't do without his enablement. So we have to continue to plead for that and walk in his ways. So to illustrate what I mean a little further, let me share with you a little more about that graduation. That evening, uh, there were several Christian teachers and parents who spoke, followed by the, the chaplain and finally the principal. All the speakers, were they were often funny. They were eloquent. Uh, they, they spoke very well. Uh, they said encouraging things. They praised the students for their accomplishments, their hard work, and encouraged them to be successful and do well in the future. Now, I was happy for those students like everyone else, um, but I couldn't help feeling a sense of sadness after that. And it wasn't because my son was leaving us. That, that was bittersweet. Yes, we were sad about that. At the same time, we were happy and excited for him. I was sad because I was reflecting at, wow, I'm at a Christian graduation. This is actually my, that was my first Christian high school graduation. And it was no different than, I used to be a college and career pastor here in California. And so every year when my students are graduate, I'm getting invites from, I'm going to Pierce and CSUN and UCLA. I went to one in Santa Barbara, high school graduations through my life. And I just reflect, reflecting and I go, and this Christian school's graduation was really no different than all the other ones I went to. As a matter of fact, the best speech that anyone gave was the valedictorian. One of the students was the only one who actually talked about the gospel. And she said how she's praying for her class. So what do you think? I just want you to think to yourself, you know, but am I asking for too much to expect that a Christian school would be glorifying God in what they think and saying, recognizing him and honoring him at such an important ceremony? I don't think that's asking too much. You know, it's not like the Bible has nothing to say about people leaving one chapter of life and starting the new chapter. It's not like they, oh, I wish it said something about high school graduations. Unfortunately, I almost said to the, so my Tagalog almost leaked out, you know, Cy Young, there's nothing in there. But unfortunately, no. Scripture is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. We got, I was just thinking in my head during the time, they could have talked about Israel going from the wilderness into the promised land and Moses encouraging them, Joshua encouraging them to take the land and to be strong and courageous and lean on the Lord. And you got a lot of students who are moving away from their family for the first time. Some of them never have been, they were born in the Philippines and have never been out of the country, except for maybe furloughs. All of a sudden they're going to live in a dorm, maybe in a secular college or a Christian college where maybe the students weren't behaving like they're, they're used to Christians behaving in a Christian bubble and you know, encouragement would have been very uh, relevant and important to give at that time from God's word. And I, so I believe that the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, Colossians 3, chapters 12, or excuse me, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, speak to this issue. It kind of unfolds a little more detail, this theme of uh, this, our theme verse for the conference, uh, Philippians one twenty one. I didn't want to do a topical message just because they're a lot more work and you've got to develop the context for all these little parts and I'd rather anchor in one text. And I thought this Colossians 3.12 through 17 uh, says that same idea well about living for Christ in every moment. But uh, before we jump into the text, I want to quickly set it in its context. 
So Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, it appears that while in Ephesus, Paul led a man named Epaphras to Christ. Now, Epaphras was from Colossae. He was visiting, and he was so transformed by the gospel that when he went back home, he was involved in leading others to Christ and planning a church. But it didn't take long. Paul didn't go there and establish a church himself. It was one of his disciples who was basically a, a new, new believer. Maybe uh, he was familiar with the, the God of uh, Scripture. The, of that time, they only had the Old Testament. But uh, it wasn't founded by an apostle. And Paul was concerned for them because false teaching was already beginning to raise its ugly head in the church. So he wrote them a letter called the Colossians, or to the Colossians that we know of. And he was encouraging them and, and warning them about these false teachers. So he, re, he warned them to reject the heresies of worldly philosophies and, the, and their, their false teachings and to put into practice daily living for Christ that is consistent with their new nature. Whether they were a Gentile who turned from idol worship and um, the... the perverse uh, temple rituals they would practice in their um, idolatry, or whether they were a Jew who um, could have been uh, legalistic, following the law, or a Jew who was waiting the Messiah, the message was the same to all of them, it's the same to us. If you're a new creature in Christ, you need to live according to that new nature. So then Paul prayed for them, in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. And he, his prayer was that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I, I usually share this with all my students. In uh, China, which is just a few hours north of us by plane, they speak Chinese. And just off the coast of China is Taiwan. They speak Taiwanese. And my students, Christians, myself and you, we all speak another language called Christianese. And we understand what we're talking about. Then we talk to other people in the world using our Christianese, and they're going, huh? We often even share the gospel with non-believers using Christianese and little things they don't get. And this... This idea of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, that's, that word walk is a Christianese. It's part of our language. We understand it means to daily live, have a habit, a pattern of living a certain way. And Paul was praying for the Colossians that their pattern, their habit, their way of living life would be worthy of the salvation that the Lord had given them. It would be pleasing to him. It would bear fruit in every good work, and it would increase in the knowledge of God. They would be growing in the word. And then in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 2, he again addressed how they should live. As they are new creatures, new creations, how should they live then? And he said in verse 6 and 13, Therefore, as you received Christ, as you were saved, as you recognized you were a sinner, you were lost, God is holy, you could not live in His presence, you received His grace and His forgiveness. Because of those precious gifts, Receive Christ Jesus as your Lord, as your master. And so, walk in him. Verse 13, And you, who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, 
having forgiven our trespasses and sins. Now, obviously, he's telling them God made you alive. They weren't dead before. When he was talking to them, they weren't dead because they wouldn't even hear him. Obviously, he's a figure of speech. Spiritually, they were dead. God gave them faith and made them alive. Made them alive inside so now they could do something that was impossible before. Before they were slaves to sin. They were in bondage to it. They couldn't please God. They didn't have faith. Now they were his children. They could understand his word. They could live for him and please him. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, Paul again teaches that since believers have been made alive in Christ, we should stop living how we used to live and now live for Christ in all areas of our lives. So he wrote in the first five verses of chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek or live for the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. If we're living for the things in this world, it's going to be hard to serve God the way he's created you to do. I, I have friends that have, I know many. I was a college pastor, I think I said, and I had a lot of students. I took on mission trips. They said, I, I want to be a missionary. And then they go and borrow $50,000 for college, buy a $30,000 car, um, run up their credit cards. I'm like, how are you going to be a missionary when you are buying up treasures here in America that will probably take you the next 20 years to pay off? I had one couple who wanted to be missionaries, and they are by God's grace, but they said, yeah, we want to be missionaries and leave in the next few years, and then they bought a condo. This was when the market was um, just when it was up towards a higher end, and it, when they're lucky they sold it just before it went down. They would have been stuck. They would have ended up buying a $200,000 condo that uh, was only worth $100,000. They would have never been able to go to the mission field. God was gracious and um, um, prompted them to sell it, but if we hold on to things in this world... It's going to hinder us from serving the Lord wherever he calls us. And it doesn't have to be just missions, you know. Um, you could be such a slave to your job and have to work so many hours. I know so many. I used to work at Hughes Aircraft for about 10 years before I went into ministry. And we were all working so much overtime so we could buy all these things, you know, our big screen TVs and our nice cars and all of that. And, you know, I had friends that, you know, the, the hours got cut off when the economy went down. They're losing homes and cars and all that. But if your treasure's in heaven, you're not pursuing these temporal things. And so Paul, Paul told the Corinthians, set your heart there. Live for the kingdom. Be transformed and live in that way so God can be glorified in and through you. So we see from Paul's letter that being followers of Jesus does not mean we simply observe a list of do's and don'ts. It means that our lives are so transformed that not just what we do has changed, but who we are is changing. Practically, these changes should impact every moment and every area of our lives, including our thinking, our speech, our actions and attitudes, our goals for the future, our planning, discussions, habits, entertainment, spending, eating, fellowship, friendships, etc. I remember... 
um, when I, I would um, teach my college group every Thursday night, I believe it was, we'd finish at about 9, roll into Denny's about 10, and we'd be there till about 1 in the morning. It takes a special animal, I think, to be a college pastor. You get to keep some strange hours. But I often felt convicted because we would talk about maybe the sermon and what we were studying for a little bit, but then we'd start joking and getting all, often I caught myself, whoa, 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 we're getting way, we're not fellowship anymore, we're almost getting a little worldly, where conversations are getting kind of edgy, we've got to live for Christ in every moment, that doesn't mean we, we're not real, we don't share our excitement and our, our hopes and, and plans and all that, but we should do that through the lens of God's word and being his children. I believe that Paul teaches this in this text that we're going to look at this morning, Colossians three twelve through 17. So let me read that text, and you can follow along as I, as I read. Paul wrote, in, starting in verse 12, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And from these verses, Paul teaches that three things should change. There should be three changes in those who follow Jesus. These are the three things I want you to walk away with, to take home. I want you to remember these. You, you may forget other things I say. These are the three things you want to remember, that being a follower of Jesus should change our attitudes. Being a follower of Jesus should change our influences. That is what we allow to influence us. And being a follower of Jesus should change our actions. Let's look at the first. Looking at verses 12 and 14. Being a follower of Jesus should change our attitudes. You see, living for him should transform the way we view and treat others. Paul commands, you know, just suggestions. Paul commands that since we have been made new people in Christ, we should put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And in this section, Paul reminded the Colossians that they're among God's chosen. I could preach a whole message just on that. Well, I'll leave that for someone else here. I'm sure you guys are well taught and are um, up on the God's calling and election. But Paul reminded them that God chose them, that he made them a part of his family, and that he set them apart to be holy, to be apart from sin, and they're beloved. Then he describes how thoroughly their attitudes need to be transformed. In verses 5 through 9, he had taught, here's sins that you need to put off and change. But then in verses 12 and 14 here, he says, now here's some things you need to replace them with. Before we become believers, we have patterns of living and thinking. 
So just for example, let's say you became a believer at 20 years old. You've got 20 years of habits. You've got 20 years of language and words you use. 20 years of expressing emotions. Um, 20 years of exercising or not exercising patient a certain way or dealing with conflict or talking to friends, family, parents, and, and so on. And a lot of it was ungodly or displeasing to the Lord. So scripture doesn't simply say, don't do this, don't do that. It also says, here's how God wants you to live and to please him. Here's what will help you and make you more like Christ, will make your life better. Put these on. And that's what he does in verses 12 through 14, actually, and even more following. But he um, tells them here, if you are a new creature, you've been changed. Here's what you need to put on. Here's how you need to change. And Paul uses a familiar action. The familiar action of getting dressed as a metaphor to express and give us this word picture of how we need to daily clothe ourselves and put on these attitudes. This, you know, getting dressed in America, we all do that every day. Now, there's some tribal groups in the Philippines and other places. They wear basically a little mud flap. Maybe they wouldn't get it, but we get this illustration. We get up in the mornings. Um, I don't want to pick on my wife, but she'll, uh, she, you know, the pajamas go off onto the floor. <laughs> the, the, work for the, clo- the work clothes go on for the day, and she goes about her business, comes home. Those are off and then somewhere else on the floor, and then some more comfortable clothes. But we get dressed all the time. And so he uses this familiar picture to say that's how we need to be with these attitudes, how God wants us to be transformed. It's like we're wearing them and we're putting them on every day. And so I want to quickly um, move through these attitudes because I want to focus more towards the end of the text. But, um, and I don't want to explain the obvious. Some of these attitudes are kind of obvious. But I'm going to highlight a few. I'll work through them all but, and highlight a few. But Paul first said the first attitude that needs to change with our new nature is that we need to have compassionate hearts. Which means we need to hurt when others are suffering. And it describes an aching of concern for those who are in need or who are hurting. And it's pretty hard to have an evangelistic heart if you don't have a heart of compassion. If you look out at the booth out there that I have set up, I got a little photo book. And it shows some people there that I met who live under a bridge. I just saw one man sitting on the side of a bridge, sitting on the rail. I noticed his legs were deformed. And I passed him on the way to church every week. And after doing that many times, I just, it just kind of clicked. Whoa. First, time, first few times I thought it was a coincidence. Then I realized this guy must live around here somewhere. Why is he always sitting on that rail of that bridge? And I got to know, I can't just keep passing him and do nothing. He's, he's dirty. Is this a dirty area? What's going on? So I pull over and I start to share with him. I give him a Bible. I introduce myself. He knew a little bit of English. I knew a little Tagalog. And so we were able to communicate. And I shared the gospel with him and got to know him. I started visiting him twice a week. And then one day I'm playing chess. I found out he plays chess. So I bought a little chess set. And I set it up on the bridge. And I brought some plastic stools. Um, his legs don't work, so he drags himself by the knuckles is one thing I learned. And I also learned that he lives right there. He climbs down a ladder. And there's a little three-foot-wide or so metal roof, three-foot-wide by maybe eight feet, and he's been living there for about a decade with no running water, no electricity, no bathroom. And then I'm looking at his roof, and I see there's about six or seven others. I'm playing chess with him, and then some little heads pop up across the street between the rail of the bridge on the other side. These little kids 
Like, who are those guys? He goes, oh, they're, they're the ones who live on the other side. I go, there's people that live on the other side? So I started bringing snacks, and the kids would always run up to me and became friends with them. They took me to the other side. I found there's a hundred people living under this bridge. It was dirty. It's stinky. They don't have a bathroom. They urinate on the walls. It flies are everywhere. But because of a heart of compassion, that just all kind of disappeared. I saw families, husbands and wives, trying to live and struggle. And I was, I was thankful. Lord, thank you for showing me this. I can share you with all these people here. I'd love to share more. I don't have time on that. But um, compassionate hearts open the doors for the gospel. We should step through them when the Lord causes our hearts to ache for others. Kindness is another attitude we need to put on. It speaks of being good to others without being short or harsh. I think that one's kind of self-explanatory, kindness. Another attitude we should put on is humility. And it's really hard to serve others if you, don't, if you see yourself as above them or better than them. Or at least it's hard to serve them without sounding condescending and coming across that way. These guys under this bridge, they knew. I'm, I'm a rich white man from America. Um, you know, they... They thought I was there like so many others just coming to get my photo op, but uh, they saw after I just kept coming back and loving on them that, hey, uh, this guy doesn't see himself any better than us. He's like, and I felt that many times. I've seen them sitting them play with their kids like I play with mine. Husbands and wife give each other a kiss before they go off and try to earn some money. Um, families are sick and they're, they're worried about each other, caring for each other. In a community like that, if someone fights, everyone knows about it and... Um, you, need to, you need kindness, compassion, and humility to be used by the Lord to reach to people that, that need Him. You need to be meek. You need to put on this attitude of meekness. You need to wear it like a garment, which means, or it can also be translated gentleness. It's an inward attitude or a willingness to suffer injury or insult rather than hurt others. And patience. I mean, it's interesting. These people sometimes would fight. Remember, in the Philippines, they don't have divorce. It's illegal. But what they do is they just they have second families. You'll have people that will just abandon one family and go marry another one and have more kids. And this one man living under the bridge, he had him and his wife with um, several kids, found another woman, brings her in under the bridge. You know, I'm just, I'm just thinking of my daughter. You know, honey... <laughs> don't aspire for a man living under a bridge who has a wife and kids. That's not the kind of guy you should look at. But for some reason, this girl had no problem with it, was attracted and moved in, fighting with the wife. I was out there one day sharing with the man Obet on the rail, and we're talking, and the, the second wife, they call him, the second, she's chasing the other wife, throwing a big chunk of cement at her. I have to have patience with people like that. As I'm sharing the gospel with them, I got friends and the police and all that. You know, I could come down hard on them and threaten. And, but I want to see these people know Jesus Christ. I need to be compassionate and kind and humble and deal with them that way and realize God was patient with me. I got to just stick, stick with it, keep sharing the gospel, keep praying for them and pray that it will transform their lives. But by the grace of God, I would be just like them. And Paul continues to add to these attitudes in verses 13 and 14. He says, we also need to have forbearance, forgiveness, and love. So he wrote in verse 13, we need to put this on also, 
this attitude of bearing with one another, which means to um, patiently put up with the errors and the weaknesses of others. We'll see this happen in churches all the time. Someone won't lead what we think is the best way or the right way or make some mistake or with their children and you know, or maybe you're mentoring and discipling someone and how come they didn't follow my advice? You know, I'm done with them. And now my heart is actually being convicted because someone just popped in my mind who I've, uh, I'm disappointed in and used to disciple and I've been kind of avoiding. I'm gonna, maybe I need to reach out to her. But we need to bear patiently with the errors and weaknesses of others. And he goes on to say, if you have a complaint against someone else, then we must forgive each other. If someone comes to you and they are sorrowful, they are repentant, they recognize the wrong and they ask for forgiveness, you must forgive them as the Lord has forgiven us. The Lord has forgiven us so much more than we could ever forgive anyone else. And our sins against him are so much greater than anyone's sins against us. And yet he forgave us. And we need to follow his example. We need to graciously grant someone pardon for their wrongs against us. And at this point, Paul tells us the attitude we must have that ties all these together. He said in verse 14, above all of these, we must put on love. And love refers to a decision of the will here, a commitment to seek the best for the object of that love. You know, I know there's a lot of Christians who have good intentions but a common strategy for many today is, you know, like in the Philippines, it's, we'll go to the Muslim areas, they'll do medical and dental clinics. And as Christians, if we have the ability and the resources to do that, we should. We should help people who don't have clothing, who need medicine, whose children are sick or who are suffering, whose faces are swollen because they've got dental problems, whatever it might be. We should do that, but not as a gimmick, not as a strategy it bugs me so much. I see so many churches doing that. They'll set up the table here. You've got this long line of people waiting for hours and hours. They'll get up to the table with a doctor to see the doctor because they can't afford it. And so the doctor examines, oh, yes, you've got this and that. No, medicine will clear that up in a week. So before you get your medicine, go to this table here and listen to this person speak with you for however long. And then, then you can go to the table. So it's like, oh, so... If I don't go to this table and hear this message, then you're not going to help me. That communicates a message. But when love is binding these attitudes together, it changes a little bit. Yes, the doctor's there, he's listening. And, you know, we're here to help you because God has changed us. We're so grateful for what he's done. I can't help it. God has blessed me with resources, and I want to share them with you. I want to tell you about that. I'll share him, and, and here's some medicine. We, we want to make sure you get better. So rather than a strategy, it's an overflow of the gospel impacting our own lives. It's transformed people. We do things. We share the gospel. We have these attitudes, not because it's a duty, not because it's a strategy. It's because it's who we are, who we should be. So if we don't have love binding these together, the people see. They see that we're plastic Christians. It's just, it's not genuine I got that term from a friend of mine in the Philippines who's had many people come by and help and donate. And he says, I see so many people that are plastic. They don't want to touch us. 
They don't want to get near. We were, I was sitting there doing a Bible study at the bottom of the bridge. The bridge goes over the river, so we're down below. And also in a giant hefty bag, someone throws it over the side of the bridge, I think, while their car was moving because it came by fast. Boom! Hits the ground. Well, the kids are playing. Everyone's shocked. They're, their clothes are hanging from lines there as they're drying. That could have hit one of their kids because they didn't have enough uh, respect for these people to walk it down there and say, hey, I just wanted to share, or just set it down. They throw it over the side. It's dirty down there. It smells like urine down there. There's flies and it's filthy. That bugs me. That's, that's not love. And maybe someone, it made someone feel better, but it, it wasn't love, and they sure didn't feel the love. Well, this transformation will not only change our attitudes, but will, it will also affect what we allow to shape our thinking. Paul teaches in verses 15 and 16 the second transformation that should happen in our attitudes if, or in our lives if we're followers of Jesus Christ. Not only our attitude should be changed, but our influences. If we claim to be Christians, then the things that guide our thinking should change. My wife uh, is a graduate of UCLA, and she was a psychology major. It took several years of reading the Bible and, and wrestling with the Word to undo some of the thinking that she had learned from the world, the, the influences that she allowed in her life. You know, how do you reconcile, like, Freudian psychology or Rogers and stuff like, God doesn't exist, you're not a sinner, there's no such thing as sin, you're a victim, you did your crime, it's not your fault, it's someone else's. How do you reconcile that with God does exist, you're going to stand before him someday, you're in bondage to sin and slavery, you need his grace to give you faith to believe and live according to his way so that you'll no longer be a slave. You can't integrate those things. And she went to school letting that influence her life because she thought that would make her, her major was business with a psychology, no, it was actually psychology with a business minor. She thought that would make her a better, in the business field, having that background. Well, she let those influences in her mind. And even today, sometimes there's certain thinking, even in our child raising, I have to challenge her, is that, is that biblical, that thinking, or is that just practical? Is that something you learn in school? You know, think about that. So as followers of Christ, when we start looking at those things in our lives, what, what do we allow to, to enter our eyes and our hearts we're going to change those things. So Paul said in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Our new nature and new attitudes need to be guided by the peace of Christ. And there's a few nuances to peace. One is it's a feeling of, of safety and security, knowing that you're in a right relationship with God. In John 14, 27, Jesus told his disciples that peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God gives a peace that's not like the world, a peace that will prevent us from being troubled by our circumstances and the things in the world. This peace is also described in people who are being reunited or who have been reunited with someone that they were once separated from, like us being the, um, reunited with God or reconciled to God, or Jews and Gentiles being reconciled together, like in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. It says in Ephesians 2, 13 and 14, Now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made Jew and Gentile both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
And one other aspect of the peace of, of Christ is that it comforts our hearts, makes us, and not only comforts our hearts, makes us feel secure and reconciles relationships, but it also keeps us trusting God when things don't seem to make sense or things seem hopeless. And in Philippians 4, 7, it says, Paul said that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You don't understand what's going on. You might be in a situation, how can this happen? I don't see any way out. God can give you peace in that. That could be suffering. That could be something in a mission field that can be cheated. Maybe someone's cheating you out of, say, a promotion or out of money, a bad business deal. God can give you peace in situations like that, even when you don't understand. Well, Paul commands us to let the peace of Christ, peace like those nuances I shared, let that rule in your hearts. And that word rule comes from a Greek, uh, Greek verb that uh, uh, refers to the activity of an umpire or a referee, like in a, say in a sporting game, like a basketball game or something. The ref is the one who would make the call. Did he get the shot off in time? Was he in bounds? So you're letting the peace of Christ rule in your heart. It, it's guiding your thinking. Your heart has, is often referred to as the, as the seat of emotions and the way you form your thoughts and, your, and where you... Um, your desires come from. So as you're thinking and analyzing things in life, let the peace of Christ guide you in those decisions. You see, when a transformed person deals with those who are hard to bear with, like we saw earlier in our, in our text, those who we might have a complaint against or those that we might need to forgive and love, we need the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts to help us in Responding and dealing with them in a godly way. And since this peace must be built upon truth, Paul commands us to allow the Word of God to permeate our lives. So he says in verse 16, Let the Word of God, or the Word of Christ, dwell in you richly. The more the Word of God is dwelling in you, the more the Word of Christ will rule in your heart or the peace of Christ will rule in your heart, the more you'll be able to discern what to do in a difficult situation or with a difficult person. When you put on those kinds of attitudes, that kind of thinking, that kind of lifestyle, then you can honor and glorify God in your life. But that starts with the Word of God dwelling in you richly. It means to let the Word of God be deep and abundant in your hearts. Let it inhabit or live in you. And when we allow the word to influence our lives to that level, we become more godly in our attitudes. We see the world more clearly and we live more peacefully. One of the pastors that I've been teaching in the Philippines, he's a part of a very large church, which has about 16 church plants. And he's over one of the new church plants. The mother church said that we've made a decision. We want all of our churches... We're going to allow non-believers to serve in the churches, including the worship team. They can serve in any ministry in the church except for a teaching ministry. And he, just the flags went off inside him. He calls me up and he goes, you know, is this something, is this a hill I should die on? Is this, should I draw a line in the sand here? That just doesn't seem right. The church is the believers coming together to worship God. The, the unbelievers observe and they hear the gospel. And, and our, our prayer is that when they hear that and they see the worship, they want to worship God too. But they can't help us in the worship. You can't worship what you don't even believe in. And so as we were discussing that, the Lord put on his heart 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 15. 
It's because he was a student of the Word, because the Word of God was dwelling richly in him. He poured that Word in there. He treasured it in his heart that the Holy Spirit was able to remind him of God's will on that. If he wasn't a student of the Word, he'd still be walking around clueless, reading the latest book or fad, or listening to the pastor going, oh, I guess it makes sense. pastor says if we let them serve, maybe they'll become Christians someday. So 2 Corinthians six fourteen and 15 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This, the Philippines is a large... Uh, the, the, it's over 100 million people. No, no, just past 90 million people. And it's about 80% Catholic. And I understand, I've got a lot of Catholic friends, and I understand the desire to share the gospel with them. But they had some Catholics going to the Protestant churches because they, they kind of got bored with the Mass. It was the same thing over and over. Some, just someone reads the prayer, you repeat after me. And they liked it. Someone was teaching the Bible. Wow, it just seems more alive. But they would say, I'm a Catholic. I was born a Catholic. I'm going to die a Catholic. They would come to the Christian churches, and they're doing their rosaries in the aisle. And so my friend is saying, you know, we... We need to talk to them. If they've been coming here for some time and getting the Word of God, we need to make sure that they understand the gospel and understand the difference. This is the same pastor I'm telling you about. This is the same church that says, no, we need to let them serve in the church. They have a huge problem of homosexuality in the Philippines. There's so many, 10% of them are working abroad. That's their number one export. They, they go abroad to work and they send money back to take care of their families. And so you've got a lot of boys growing up without fathers and there's a lot of effeminates. And so... The same church had men who were wearing women's clothing. My friend says, you know, we need to rebuke them. If they're claiming to be followers of Christ and they wanna, they're enjoying the word, we need to tell them that they're dishonoring God. And this church is saying, no, we've got to let them minister. And so this passage came to his heart and he stood up with his elders and says, you know what, we're not doing that. And they stood up to the mother church and the mother church said, all right, well, you've got your own elders, you're autonomous, we'll just do that here. We'll, you have the freedom to do what you want in yours. And because they stood up, because they knew the word, they, they put on these attitudes and they changed their influences. They were influencing themselves and changing by the word of God so they're able to think biblically and rightly and minister and live in a way that pleases the Lord. And Paul went on to tell us in verse 16, what happens to people who are, Richly indwelt with the word. What, what would it characterize? What would they look like? Well, I believe 16 tells us these kind of people are people who are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. They can't help but do that. When you're pouring the word of God in you, it, it's, you know, it's almost like a volcano. You just can't contain it. It's going to erupt at some point. You're going to tell somebody. You're gonna, if that faith is genuine, you're excited what God's done in your life and saved you, you have to tell someone. And so you're going to admonish and teach doesn't mean you're going to stand up behind a pulpit or teach Sunday school, but it might be your kids, it might be your neighbor, your co-worker. You're going to share Jesus. Um, another way we teach is through singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts. And ultimately, this all is to God. It glorifies and honors Him. And I enjoyed the worship here this morning. Um, I was sharing in the first service, the Filipinos love karaoke. That's like they're the number one karaoke nation in, in the world, I believe, or they're, they're definitely up there. But sometimes I'm sad in church. A lot of the churches I've gone to there, it feels like when they're singing that they're just doing more karaoke. When the, some of the songs they're singing, it's not really teaching. It's 
I, it sounds like he's singing to his girlfriend or his bo- or she's singing to her boyfriend. The lyrics are, I can't tell anything distinct about it being teaching about God or glorifying and honoring him. I'm not saying all their songs, but often I see that happening. It makes me sad. I tell people, it's kind of a rule of thumb. If the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses can sing this same song, it's not distinctive enough to teach about Christ and who he is. Let's not sing those ones. Let's choose other ones that are clearly teaching and admonishing and encouraging. And part of living for Christ includes a continual desire and responsibility to know God more and to make him known through his word. Well, Paul had made it clear that being a follower of Jesus should affect our attitudes. It should affect our influences. But there's doesn't stop there. There's one more thing he talks about in, in this passage. In verse 17, he teaches that being a follower of Jesus should change our every action. Being united with Jesus should be so life-changing that we want to glorify him in every opportunity that he gives us. If I haven't said this already, this is something beyond our human capabilities. He's calling us to do something supernatural. Obviously, we can't do it in our own, on our own, in our flesh. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us and help us live this way. We need to be constantly clinging to him in prayer and fellowship in the word so that we can do this. In verse 17, Paul ends this section with a challenging statement. He said, and this is going to cover those, our, our attorneys, our people who are always seeking the loopholes and the things that weren't included. So he said, just in case, you know, I didn't talk about uh, mother-in-laws here or a few other things. Well, you know, okay, do I have to be this? You said to be this way in my, you know, gentleness and humility. But what about when my mother in well, so I'm going to cover all the bases here. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. There's nothing that is left out. God's word is sufficient for all matters of life and godliness. And this means that we need to act in concert with the nature and character of the Lord, whether uh, we speak or act, and no matter our situation that we find ourselves in, We're always his children. We're always his reps. We need to act consistently with who God is and what he wants us to do and how he wants us to live, no matter whether it's a graduation that we're speaking at, whether we're getting our hair cut, we're shopping in the malls, trying on shoes, um, talking about politics, whatever it might be, we're ambassadors of Christ, and we need to, word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord. It's difficult for Filipino pastors, Filipinos in general, to come to the U.S. So many, you know, they watch TV and they see all the things and the blessings we enjoy here, and they'd like to have that too. So many apply, few are able to come. Last year, a a pastor I invited to come for the Shepherds Conference. We had letters of invitation and all that. He went to the U.S. Embassy, and during his interview, first question you know, so, you know, they got his application, they got his name. So tell me, uh, Ray, uh, what do you do for a living? He says, oh, I'm a pastor. Guy just starts shaking his head. He starts writing on a yellow piece of paper. As he's writing, yeah, yeah, uh, so, uh, yeah, where do you live? You got a kid, huh? Okay. Well, thank you very much. No. Visa denied. He was just crushed. He's like, you know, he owns a home there. He owns some other property. Him and his wife were both CPAs. He left that to go into full-time ministry. And because he makes so little now, 
And they figure, oh, you're going to go to America and not come back. You're going to just try to live there and stay illegally. I had another pastor this year who I tried to bring. The same thing. Um, he applied. They said, no, but thank you for your $150 and uh, all morning you spent here. Um, you know, and so we're going to try again next year. I'm, I'm praying that the Lord will allow him to come at some point. But I had one other pastor probably about four years ago, and he was at the embassy applying for his visa. And he called me in a panic. He goes, Pastor Sean, I, I don't know what to do. I, I'm here. I filled out my application, and I came across one question. It's, you know, he's, he's expecting, you know, your name, where you live, maybe what you do. He says, a question here, it says, have you ever been convicted of a crime or committed a felony? Problem was, he spent 10 years in prison for murder. When he was a, a teenager, he murdered someone. And they called him the little warden while he was in prison. He led one of the gangs there and worked with the prison guards. He was able to smuggle in drugs and women. He even got day passes to go to the movies. And uh, he worked, you know, he paid them their cut. And then one day, the Lord made him sick. He had a pulmonary issue, and they put him in the hospital, prison hospital. And a missions team was visiting and sharing the gospel. And the word just grabbed his heart radically transformed him. I call him the John the Baptist of the Philippines. I remember the first time I ever rode with him on the train. We're just sitting there peacefully going somewhere, and all of a sudden he starts yelling, preaching, open-air preaching. Who's this guy? You know, this very mild, meek Philippine. You know, his face is um, kind of damaged. I never asked him why, but I suspect from prison fights, he could see the scars and stuff. And so he just starts preaching and sharing the gospel. You need to repent. And then all of a sudden he goes, Brother Sean, tell these people about Jesus. I'm like, what? And he did that to me in prison as well. And the Lord radically changed his life. And because he murdered when he was a teenager, he got out after 10 years. And so he goes back. When I was working with him twice a week to the prison, now he, he's ministering to the two largest gangs in the Philippine prison population, Bahalanang Gang and the Sputnik Gang. He's planted several churches. He's got a Christian school up to high school. He's got another school just for the children of prisoners. He's an evangelist. He's, his goal, he tries to share the gospel with 50,000 people a year. And um, he asked, what should I do with this question? And I said, Pastor, you know what you've got to do. And he goes, yeah, you're right. You're right, I know. I just kind of panicked. I didn't expect that. So he answered truthfully, and then he got his interview, and he proceeded to use that situation and his words and his deeds, and he shared the gospel with his interviewer. He shared how I was in prison, I was a murderer, God changed my life radically, he made me a new man, he did this to me, and I want to go to America to get some training at this conference and share what God has done to me here and thank Americans for their help in sending missionaries and visa approved. He's coming out again in a few months. Um, he's a neat brother. Never stepped foot out of this little rough neighborhood he lived in. Now he's been in Africa, he's been in America, some other places in Asia, speaking, and he's going to come here again. Maybe, maybe I can ask him if you guys are willing. I could have him come and share with your youth or whatever. He does magic tricks and stuff. I remember we were in a youth prison one time. I'm going to try not to go over, but we're in a youth prison, and he's sharing with these kids that are locked up. Um, the story of uh, the rich man of Lazarus. And so as he's sharing about uh, uh, Lazarus and the rich man in hell, and he's saying, just send Lazarus to tell my parents, you know, my family, that I'm in hell, I'm in agony. He's holding this Bible, but it, it's hollowed out, and he's got this sponge soaking with uh, uh, like lighter fluid or something. And so he 
th- throws the spark, and all of a sudden this Bible is flaming, and he's, he gets on his knees, and he's yelling, it's agony in here. Send out, you know, Lazarus, the roar in my family. These kids are just like, you know. <laughs> he's, he's a powerful evangelist, um, humble, neat man. But he was glorifying God in every opportunity that the Lord had given him. And uh, Paul echoes this same thought in other passages like 1 Corinthians 10.31 where he said, Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Or like our theme verse again, for me to live is Christ. That's the reason I have my being. John MacArthur commented on Philippians 1.21 saying, For Paul, life is summed up in Jesus Christ. Christ was his reason for being. If we claim to be followers of him, that should be our reason for being as well. Not just Sunday, not midweek Bible study, not when, oh, there's another Christian, and all of a sudden we'll watch my language now. Um, always, it should be who we are. So being a follower of Jesus and living for him as a new creation in union with God and having a new nature should continually change and grow our attitudes, our influences, what we allow into our hearts and our minds, and everything that we think, do, and say. In addition to Christian circles, this should impact how we act at special occasions like graduations. I don't think I'm asking too much to expect that of Christians. Um, It should impact um, how we act in sporting events. When we get a flat tire on the on the road and we're late for work or whatever we're going to, when we're spending time with our non-believing friends and family, it should impact uh, the way we drive in heavy traffic, our dealing with rude people, our conversations, including those with our spouses and children. It should impact how we handle conflicts, etc., etc., etc. Let your new nature, let our new nature not only affect what we do, but who we are every day, every minute, in every situation. And Lord, I ask for your spirit to help us do that. Give us the strength to do it. Give us the desire to do it. Feed us and fill us with your spirit and your word so that we know your expectations. We know what pleases you. We know your will. And then let it be our greatest joy to know you and to serve you with your word and in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.